No, it was not, in fact, the lid of a can. It was the first of 22 pieces of gold that he pulled from the field, over two pounds of solid gold that had been buried for 1,500 years. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, tis the season once again. It's the Art Angle Christmas episode. Can you believe we made it through another one of these incredibly intense pandemic years? It's almost hard to believe, and so we figured we would craft this festive little holiday cast as something soothing and reflective, some old-fashioned bomb for the soul. No NFTs here. So what is the antithesis of NFTs? Why archaeology, of course. And it just so happens that this year was filled with all kinds of fascinating revelations that continue to shape and sometimes radically rewrite our understanding of the ancient world. To discuss what happened this year in the world of old news, I'm very happy to be joined on the show today by Artnet News' own Sarah Cascone, who has written an epic number of archaeology stories this year, as usual, and I mean epic of Gilgamesh, epic. So thanks very much for coming back on The Art Angle, Sarah. My pleasure, Andrew. So we're living in this incredibly turbulent, disturbing time. Am I the only person who takes comfort in reading about archaeological discoveries? We find that people love them. They just can't get enough of trying to understand the people that came before us. It's really something that people gravitate towards, I think. You know, a little revelation about myself. I was an archaeologist for a little while after I graduated college, and I find this stuff to be just so totally fascinating, so um, full of surprises, full of information about the world that you would never be exposed to otherwise that I'm very excited to do this podcast today. And I know we have a bit of ancient terrain to cover, so why don't we start with the big kahuna of English antiquity. What did 2021 reveal about Stonehenge? Well, obviously, Stonehenge is one of the world's most enduring mysteries of humankind, and we're learning more about it all the time. You know, we may never fully understand it, but one thing that we learned this year that people, I think, had suspected for a long time was that The inner circle of smaller stones, the blue stones, were actually originally erected 175 miles away in Wales because they found a small circle there that perfectly matches the dimensions of the circle at Stonehenge. How long before this circle came to Stonehenge were they made at Wales? So Stonehenge was erected on Salisbury Plain around 5,000 years ago, and this circle of like buried holes where the stones once stood was about 400 years before that. So even earlier. So that's obviously a large gap of time. And that raises, I think, the obvious question, which is what did Merlin have to do with all of this? (laughs) Well, actually, there is a legend as written down in the 12th century by a man called Geoffrey of Monmouth. And he claimed that Merlin and his men stole a stone circle from what was Ireland and then moved it to England. And perhaps that myth has its roots in truth because that part of Wales was actually once considered part of Ireland. So this is maybe a silly question, but I always thought Merlin was just a purely fantasy creation. Was he a real person? I think that It's definitely just a myth as far as I know, (laughs) unless there's an archaeological story there that's yet to be told. But, you know, a lot of myths are rooted in the truth. 
So what else did we learn about Stonehenge? We learned that it is a foreign import from Wales. What else did we learn? Well, we found out why it has stood the test of time so well. Hmm. Because the material in the large standing stones, the kind of iconic ones that you picture, they actually were able to determine what the geochemical makeup of those stones is. And it's a type of quartz that is super strong and like basically indestructible. So indestructible meaning like Wolverine skeleton, like you, <laughs> you throw, <laughs> throw a missile at it and uh, it bounces back? Or what, what does it mean to be indestructible? Well, what they discovered is that it's very resistant to erosion and weathering, hmm. which is kind of perfect for something that is going to be exposed to elements all the time. So basically, it has these very tiny grains of quartz that are arranged in an interlocking matrix of crystals, which makes it a really good building material. And so how did they discover this? Because Stonehenge has obviously been an object of fascination for a long time. We're always reading new things about Stonehenge. Why did it take so long to figure out something so seemingly fundamental? Well, actually, English heritage law prevents you from taking any samples for testing from the stones because it's a protected monument. But a couple of years ago, a English retiree who had moved to the States called up Stonehenge and said, hey, I have a sample that I took when I was a diamond cutter working to do repairs on a fallen stone in 1958. And he gave back this three and a half foot long stone core. It's called the Phillips core because his name was Robert Phillips. He had been allowed to keep it because they would have just discarded it. And he gave it back and they were able to do all sorts of tests on it. They were able to do destructive tests on it. They actually ground up half the core. They were last year able to determine where the stones came from. And this year they were able to determine what the stones are made of. Wow. So does this mean that scientists are now going to be able to build recreated stone hinges all over the world like Jurassic Park? You never know what's possible with science, <laughs> Andrew. Okay. So let's flop over to another side of the world, to the Middle East, where I believe there were some new discoveries about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So first off, can you remind me, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so important? The Dead Sea Scrolls are the earliest known Hebrew biblical texts. A Bedouin shepherd discovered them in 1947 in these caves on the side of the Dead Sea. Hmm. And they're considered one of the most important archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. And what kind of contents are in the Dead Sea Scrolls? Is it liturgy? Is it a historical narrative? Do we know um, what they're actually talking about? Yeah, so it's the early text, I think, mainly from the Old Testament. Hmm. So what happened this year relating to the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, for the first time in 60 years, they found new fragments. So this is a hmm. very important discovery. And they found them in a place that's been dubbed the Cave of Horror. Okay, so it sounds a little Indiana Jonesy. Is this uh, filled with spikes and venomous serpents and evil curses? It's actually kind of a really sad story. Archaeologists discovered the cave in the 1950s, and they named it the Cave of Horrors because it was filled with dead bodies. It was actually during the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which was the Jews rebelling against the Roman Empire. And the cave can only be accessed by like rappelling down a cliffside. It seems like a whole bunch of men and women and children were basically starved to death in this cave under siege from the Romans. Wow. So how did the scroll get into this cave? 
The fragments that they found are related to the book of the 12 minor prophets, and the scroll contains verses from Zechariah and Nahum, but I don't think they know exactly how the scroll fragments would have got there. I think they would have been, you know, used by the people to practice their faith. They were found alongside like a basket and other materials from everyday life from the people who would have been taking refuge in this cave. Wow, so they could have been using this text to console themselves conceivably in this dire time. What else did we learn about the scrolls this year? Well, one of the most significant Dead Sea Scrolls, the Great Isaiah Scroll, was analyzed this year and they used artificial intelligence and they were able to determine that the physical scroll was actually written by two separate scribes. And if I remember correctly, I think that their handwriting is almost identical. Is that right? Right. So to the naked eye, it's really hard to distinguish any differences. But using like pattern recognition technology, they were able to analyze the most minute microscopic changes in the way that each letter was formed. And they were able to tell that it was not just one person. Wow. So this is a new field of AI archaeology. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Would you say that this is a significant discovery? Does this shed light on the scrolls in a way that we may not have known otherwise? Having the Dead Sea Scrolls really transports us back to the time when the Bible was first being written down and being disseminated to the Jewish people. So having that knowledge that there were two people really enhances our understanding of these ancient texts. Okay, so let's hop over to the bad guys in this narrative, the Romans, and specifically Pompeii. Because I believe that we've heard some new things about this classical hotspot, no pun intended. What did we learn about Pompeii? Or what did archaeology reveal to us about Pompeii this year? Well, this year it was very exciting. They opened to the public a newly discovered Thermopolium, hmm. which is a kind of Roman fast food restaurant. And wow. uh, yeah, it's really cool. They were able to identify what this space would have been used for because there was frescoes decorating it that had some of the ingredients that like would have been used in Roman cuisine. So like, there are roosters painted on the walls. So like a McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like the menu. <laughs> <laughs> and what were some of the items on this menu? Well, we're not entirely sure. But they did test some of the jars that were found. Basically, you would walk up and you would order your food from the counter. And they had these kind of stone jars that there would have been carved openings in the counter. And they would have placed the jars in the counter. And they tested some of the jars. And because Pompeii was abandoned so rapidly, the food was just left on site. And everything was kind of overrun by ash and lava. So they can actually test what was in these vessels because they were abandoned full of food and they had some traces of snail shells and duck bones and pig bones so they think maybe some sort of meat and seafood stew but fun fact i know that another dish that was enjoyed by the people of pompeii they would raise dormice in these special custom jars and they would fatten them up in the dark, and then they would take them out and they would roast them in honey. You are something of a foodie. You're an excellent cook. You are a a gourmet of sorts. Uh, How appealing do these dormice sound to you? I'm going to be honest and pretty adventurous, but that does turn my stomach, the thought of that a bit. (laughs) So what else did we learn about Pompeii aside from the contents of a fast food menu? Well, there was several other discoveries this year. They found evidence that 
Greek theater was alive and well in ancient Pompeii. Well, obviously that makes sense because Pompeii was one of these great resort destinations that they would want to have the finest food, the finest entertainment. This was a place for the wealthy Romans to go and congregate, kind of like the Hamptons of their time. There were some other discoveries of other Pompeys outside of Pompeii that happened this year, so to speak. What else did they find? Well, in Egypt, the lost golden city of Luxor, which was recently discovered buried amid the desert sands, they've dubbed that the kind of Egyptian Pompeii because it's such a large and intact city that they've found kind of hidden under our noses for millennia. Hmm. And who founded Luxor? What is the story behind the historical Luxor and its, you know, unfortunate untimely demise as a city. So it was built by the pharaoh Tutankhamun. It was built by his grandfather, King Amenhotep III. And unfortunately, it was outside the main capital of Egypt at the time, which was Thebes. And King Tut's father, Akhenaten, kind of abandoned the city because he decided to move the capital and he decided to found a whole new religion, abandon Egyptian religion, and kind of just focus all of the worship on the sun god, Aten. So that's why the city was abandoned. Wow. So instead of a volcano, it was actually just abandoned by a visionary ruler who wanted to create a monotheistic religion. Which didn't work out so well for him because I think a lot of his things were abandoned and he was kind of written out of Egyptian history afterward. But the discovery of Luxor is really exciting. And it's been said that it's the most important discovery in all of Egypt since Howard Carter found King Tut's tomb in 1922, which, you know, we're about to be a 100-year anniversary of that discovery. So this is big news. Wow. I can only imagine that there might be some exhibitions in the works around there that we should look out for. So, so far we've been talking about discoveries that have elaborated our understanding of fairly canonical archaeological subjects. What about discoveries that have upended our understanding of the ancient world in some way that maybe forces us to reconsider what we think we know or teaches us that we have to look at things in a different way? Well, one of the most interesting discoveries from my mind this year was a 45,000-year-old cave painting that may be the oldest artwork in the world. And obviously, Europe is very famous for its ancient cave paintings in France and in Spain, but these are actually from Indonesia. Hmm. Where exactly in Indonesia was this found? So it was found in a, a very deep, dark limestone cave on the island of Sulawesi. The cave was called Liang Tidongna Cave. The paintings are actually quite beautiful and detailed representations of these warty pigs, and they were painted with red ochre. So if I remember my ancient prehistory, this was actually before the eradication of the Neanderthals. So this was a time of early human development where there were different species of humans that were kind of roaming around the earth. Do we know... Who created this? Was it human? Was it Neanderthal? Was it some other kind of uh, creator? I believe that these were early prehistoric humans that created these paintings. They were actually able to date the paintings using uranium dating, and that measures how much of the element of uranium is still there based on its half-life. Hmm. So this is very interesting because it kind of recenters the earliest artistic achievements of humanity outside of Europe to Asia. And I wonder, is there anything else? that is kind of also working to decenter this narrative of kind of ancient European exceptionalism. 
Well, there is actually. Recent findings have determined that the Cambodian city of Angkor Wat was actually one of the world's largest pre-modern cities with a population approaching nearly one million people. Wow. Which is far more than anyone had previously thought would have lived there. So I think a lot of people are familiar with the incredibly astonishing images of Angkor Wat of the sculptural faces carved into the actual built environment of these buildings. I I think it's almost like something out of a sci-fi movie, totally astounding. How did it take so long for us to figure out that this was actually a sprawling metropolis and not just this kind of um, very sprawling but smaller complex? Well, the main buildings that have remained to this day, the really wonderful temple complexes, were built in materials that lasted, and that's why they're still with us today. But the large majority of the population of Angkor Wat and the surrounding area would have lived in far less permanent buildings. So it's difficult to see any trace of them in the landscape today, unless you're using LIDAR. Okay, so what is LIDAR? It's short for Light Detection and Ranging. And it's this very cool technology you use in airplanes. You fly over the area that you want to survey and you send down laser beams and they ping back up and they create a topographical map of the ground below. And you get really detailed readings of features that might be covered with vegetation, long roads that have been kind of grown over are much easier to see in these topographical readings. So you don't really see them Hmm. on the ground because it's such a dense vegetation or they're just so low that they wouldn't register. And you can see them on these maps. So this field of archaeology is really expanding in like totally unforeseen ways because of what we're actually now able to see in LIDAR maps. I know that you've uh, written fairly extensively on the impact of LIDAR technology on archaeology of the ancient Maya. What is LIDAR helping us learn about the world that we didn't know before? In Cambodia and in Mexico and Central America, LIDAR is giving us a much fuller picture of these pre-modern civilizations and the scope of the cities that they built and really changing our perception of these cultures and making us realize that these were significant environments that had a large population. It's interesting that in Greece and Rome, stone was plentiful. And so there was a very lasting building infrastructure that was, you know, easy at hand. Whereas if you're in a jungle setting or more of a tropical setting, that's not the same thing. You're going to be working on with lumber. You're going to be working with much more transient materials. So this kind of levels our understanding of the scale and ambition of these different civilizations in a way that's pretty fascinating. If I am not incorrect, I think that there was some less cutting edge technology that yielded a lot of discoveries this year. And what, what was that? Oh, well, this is one of my favorites, metal detectors. Okay, so the humble metal detector, the thing that somebody goes down the beach looking for coins, is that what we're talking about? A hundred percent. And it's actually become a real phenomena during lockdown. People really got out there with their metal detectors because it's a very pandemic-safe hobby. And how many people have metal detectors? Is this a big thing? I'm not really totally sure how widespread this hobby is, but it's definitely making headlines. And people are finding stuff all over the world, particularly in England. There's been a ton of discoveries in the UK 
over the last couple of years there. And these are specialized metal detecting kind of scientists or is there some kind of guild of metal detectorists? No, these are like definitely like armchair archaeologists who like bought their first metal detector and are going out and coming back with piles of gold. Legit. Like that's what's happening. So, okay. So what's one instance of this? The one that I think has the most impressive haul for me was this man in Denmark. First time using metal detector. He goes out in a field near this Danish town called Jelling and his metal detector starts going off and he starts digging in the ground and he pulls up a piece of twisted metal and he thinks, oh, that looks like a herring can. He's Danish, you know. <laughs> and no, it was not, in fact, the lid of a can. It was the first of 22 pieces of gold that he pulled from the field, over two pounds of solid gold that had been buried for 1,500 years. And whose gold is this? Well, the gold predates the Vikings, so it's not Viking gold. They think that the gold was probably buried around the time like that a large volcano erupted in the year 536 because there were a lot of famines in that time in Scandinavia. So people buried their gold as an offering to kind of hopefully bring back the sun and return to prosperity. I kind of have to ask, why do we know about this? If I found a lot of ancient gold in my backyard, I'm not sure... I would immediately go to the media to announce it. There may have been, you know, some little piece of gold I would potentially, you know, sell off beforehand. What are the rules around finding ancient gold? What, what do you have to do? Who owns it? Do you own it? Well, in the UK, they have strict treasure rules that they have actually beefed up because of the recent spate of people finding treasure. So they've expanded their definition of treasure. So that anything that you find that's really going to be valuable or historically significant, you do have to turn over to the government. Wow. And then what does the government do? Does the government, the government says, thank you very much for all this gold. Be on your way. <laughs> <laughs> so if you find the treasure, you do get a small reward based on the market value of what you find. Okay. Well, this all sounds like a very good reason for me to hope that I'm going to get a metal detector for Christmas this year. <laughs> so um, if my mom is listening, I would love a metal detector. But Sarah, we've been going over all of these different stories that are really meaningful to history at large, to all of humanity, because this is a shared heritage. Are there any stories that you worked on this year that have a personal resonance with you? So one story that really spoke to me was that they found in England, a monastery that would have been ruled by a powerful Anglo-Saxon queen. Hmm. And this is not your typical state of affairs. Usually it's a king who rules a kingdom. Is that right? What makes this so unusual? The queen, her name is Queen Sinethrith. She actually ruled alongside her husband, King Ofa, and they really were powerful together. And She's one of the only women from her era that was depicted on a coin, which shows how much power and influence she had as a co-ruler of her nation. And after her husband died, she went to this monastery and served as its royal abbess. And what does that actually mean to be the ruler of a monastery? This is not something I've really heard before. Usually you are the ruler of a kingdom, you have a castle, you're not like the queen of a monastery. This is a new one to me. There's not really that much known about it. 
And it was lost for many, many years. So now that they've found it, they're hoping they can learn more about what life there was like and what the queen's life was after her rule, because she was such a powerful figure. There are actually existing letters between her and Charlemagne. Hmm. Were there any other discoveries that changed the way that we see women's role historically in the ancient world? Well, one thing that stood out to me as a really interesting find, not exactly women, was that they found a grave of an Iron Age warrior in Finland, and they were a little confused because some of the things that this person was buried with suggested it was a warrior, and some of the things suggested that it was a woman. And what they realized with genetic testing was that it was actually a non-binary person with an extra X chromosome. Hmm. And the way that they were buried suggests that this was a high status person. And this was somebody who had a place in society, was accepted for who they were, who wore jewelry and wielded a sword. And so that's a pretty interesting story because I think there's a sense among people maybe that non-binary is some sort of trend. But here we have evidence that this is something that's been a fact of human life for centuries. This grave could be as old as like the year 1050. What kind of artifacts was um, this person buried with that indicated this? Well, so the person was buried with woolen garments that were kind of female clothes, and there were oval brooches, you know, a kind of adornment that was more associated with women. But there was also Two swords, which is typically a male warrior would wield that kind of weapon. Well, so we are about to close out this year. And I think that a lot of people are going to be very excited to take a well-deserved break. I know that you have written a gigantic amount of stories, archaeology and everything else. I think that you have a a well-deserved break coming up. But since you have been covering this waterfront of archaeology Are there any percolating discoveries, any digs, any kinds of new studies that are ongoing that you're excited to see bear fruit in 2022? One thing that I'm really interested in knowing more about is when exactly humans first arrived in North America. Hmm. And there has been a long-held theory that was the Clovis people. The Clovis first theory holds that people walked over the land bridge from Asia across what's now the Bering Strait. And there's an increasing amount of evidence that perhaps people came earlier. And the Clovis people are thought to have come, I think, around 13,000 years ago at the end of the Ice Age. But one of the stories that I wrote this year found that there were footprints dating to 23,000 years ago. And those were found in New Mexico's White Sand National Park. A growing number of things like that that are showing signs of human occupation thousands of years before we thought that the continent was habitable, that we thought it was just a big ice sheet. But people may have been here and there's increasing evidence. And I'm interested to see if all of those things pan out because there are some questions about the legitimacy of some of those discoveries. I think the footprints is one of the most promising finds of that nature, but that's one to follow for sure. Stay tuned. For 2022, the year of the Clovis people. Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for coming on The Art Angle. It's always a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's great to be here, Andrew. Thank you so much. And great to have you back in the hosting booth. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and happy holidays. 
Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and have a very happy new year.